Now, earlier this week, uh, the country woke up to some interesting news. And the news was that a 50-year-old British Islamic State fighter had carried out another suicide bombing in Iraq. Sadly, there's nothing really strange about that since there have been many British citizens who are fighting for ISIS in Iraq and Syria. What is shocking about this latest incident is the name of the man. The man's name is Jamal Udin. Uh, it turns out that in 2010, the Blair government fought tooth and nail to bring Jamal back to the UK from Guantanamo, um, Guantanamo Bay where he was held as a detainee. They then, of course, paid in one million pounds as compensation. But seven years later, he's a suicide bomber for ISIS in Iraq. There is something in all of us that finds such a situation troubling. How can it be that a man who's shown tremendous grace like that can later on become a suicide bomber? Life is not meant to be that way. And those who are shown tremendous grace are meant to be changed by it. Indeed, we think the greater the grace somebody experiences, the greater the change that's meant to come from them. One good deed, as they say, deserves another. But are we all different from Jamal, really? Uh, we may not be one of the suicide bombers here this evening in Bexley Hill. But how do we respond to the grace that is shown in our lives? How do we respond to the tremendous grace God has exhibited to us in Jesus Christ? We are now currently going through the book of Judges, as you know. Uh, this historical account of God's people after the death of Joshua. It tells how they settled in the land of Canaan. But as you know, Judges is more than that. It is ultimately an historical account of God's amazing grace to sinners that points us forward to the tremendous riches that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. The tremendous riches of grace that God has lavished on us in Christ. And today we are in Judges 3, verse 7 to verse 11. And the question we are asking in this passage is, how should we respond to God's grace towards sinners? So let us walk through this passage and see how the Bible answers that question. The first thing we see in this passage is that sin is everywhere. Sin is everywhere. The author of Judges begins this section with a familiar statement that will become so familiar with it through our Judges. Look at that. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of God. In the sight of the Lord. Now, what is this evil that they have committed? Well, the verse goes on to tell us. They forgot the Lord their God. They have forgotten their God. They don't think about God at home. 
They don't think about God when talk about him when they're at the office. They don't talk about God when they're out shopping. God has almost become irrelevant to them. He's become less than everything else around them. God no longer is the focus of their national policies. You don't find God talked about in the right way, even in sort of canon magazines. God is irrelevant to these people. And this is a huge problem, of course, because human beings are created to worship God. So when we forget God, something else fills the vacuum. Look at verse 7 there. What did they do? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baha'us, the Baals, and the Asherah. That's what they're doing. Israel has now devoted itself. The word serve there literally means, you know, toiling, working, enslaved to the Baals and the Asherah. Israel has now devoted itself not just to one false God. Have you noticed that? The bells is plural. There were many bells. There was Bell Peor, Bell Berith. There were so many of them. And all of them are made of stone. They are now worshipping these things made of stone. And many of them, they've accumulated them. And they are also worshipping Ashereth, the goddess who's made of wood. It says there, and they serve the bells and the Ashereth. You see, when the true God is no longer the focus of our worship, Nothing else can satisfy us. So we need as many idols as we can get our hands on. You see, sin is never enough to satisfy a God-shaped hole in our lives. And we see this in many lives of people who profess Christ in the past. You know, somebody would have been professing Christ and then they turn from Christ. What then happens is that You know, when they've turned to Christ, they may have turned to one thing rather than Christ. But actually what happens is that they start picking up all these bizarre beliefs and before knowing it, they're worshipping false idols. The case that comes to mind is a tragic case of a former pastor in the U.S. called Rob Bell. Rob Bell, you know, know, he was a star of the, the evangelical world in the U.S., He turned from biblical understanding of hell. He just veered from that. And before long, he's into all these bizarre new age age beliefs. And, you know, you find him in opera and so forth. And he's completely turned away now from God. When we dethrone God, the whole creator there is so huge that we run to do bizarre things. And that's what's happening to this children of Israel. Israel's worship of idols is the height of folly. They have turned from worshiping the living God to worshiping idols made of wood and stone. Think about that. They are now worshiping mere figments of human depravity. But this is more than foolishness. You see, in worshiping these idols, they are really worshiping demons. Because 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 tells us that those who worship idols really worship what? They worship demons. So it's tragic what's happened here. They have turned from worshiping the one and true God to now doubling in Satanism. From saints to demon worshippers in one generation. 
And of course, the worship of demons is alive and well today. Because all false religions worship the demonic. Anything that veers from standard biblical worship and grace in Christ is demonic. Even churches that are not biblical are merely what the Lord Jesus Christ called synagogues of Satan. And this is why as followers of Jesus, you know, as a church, we must not take part in Mount Faith services. Because it is occultism. It is a worship of demons. It is also the reason why when we as a church join with other churches, we must be very careful because if those churches are not evangelical, they are not biblical, then of course we are partnering with demons. But you see, idolatry here is not merely religious. Why has Israel wandered so deep in darkness? They have forgotten God. That's what he says. They forgot the Lord, their God. And all who are not trusting in God, all who are forgetting God, are de facto idolaters. And the world itself is, is, the entire world is an idol factory because an idol is, as we've seen in Judges, is anything in your life that you pursue, serve, and worship because you have forgotten the God of Israel. Anything you pursue, serve, and worship, not you know, other than God, anything that takes a dominant place in your life, other than God, is an idol. It is occultism. It is satanic in that sense as well. I think it is Nietzsche who said there are more idols than realities in the world. Well, whatever he meant, he was right. Certainly right about that. Nietzsche was wrong by a lot of things. Well, 99% of things. But he was right about that point. The world, there are more idols than realities in the world. Everywhere we look in the world, we see people who have forgotten God and who have given themselves to sin and Satan. So this is the first lesson we learn from this passage. Sin is everywhere. Sin is everywhere. So the question is this, if sin is everywhere, does it matter? Well, it does, and this is our second lesson we see here. Sin is everywhere, but sin is never free. Sin is never free. You see here that God has seen the evil of Israel, and he is not happy at all. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, the word kindled there literally means in some versions, perhaps one brother Rob has, or another version, has, you know, burned with anger. God is burning with anger here. Why? Because Israel's sin demands punishment. That's why it goes on to say, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Ristahem, king of Mesopotamia. God is so angry with this idolatry. What God has done then is to give up his people into the hands of Cushan. To let them live out the consequences of their sin. God is saying, look, you want to live in sin? You want to worship demons, so to speak? Well, go ahead without me. 
And the consequence is that they are now driven into the hands of this king. Who is this mysterious king? Kushiam Ristahem, king of Mesopotamia. Well, the title king of Mesopotamia means, in some version actually it's written out, king of Aram of the two rivers. Aram is the ancient name of Syria with its rivers of Damascus. Therefore, really this king controls the entire Syrian regions and now he's pushed all the way into the land of Canaan. So this is not a small king. That's what the author of Judges is emphasizing. This is not a small king God has raised up to discipline his people. God is handing his people over to be under the thumb of a world-class emperor who is greater, actually, than all the enemies of God we are going to meet in Judges. It doesn't get bigger than this king of Mesopotamia. And you know what's amazing about this king is that this king is not gentle. He's not some gentle king like Queen Elizabeth. No, the name Ristahim there, you see, means double wickedness. And it's probably a name given to him, a nickname given to him for all his evil deeds. So really we should see his name as Cushion Double Wickedness. Is that really his name? Now, it must be a nickname because no mother would name a child with a name like that. So it must have been given as a nickname to him by his victims. This king really is a Saddam Hussein, so to speak, of Canaan. And God has given up Israel to this evil tyrant because they need to be disciplined for abandoning God and walking straight into the hands of Satan. They bear the full responsibility for their idolatry. You see, sin is everywhere, but it is never free. It's costly. Living in sin always brings us pain because God always disciplines his three children. He's committed to lovingly correct us when we go wrong, if we belong to him. You see, God is not allowing this evil tyrant because he hates Israel. On the contrary, God is allowing pain to enter their lives because he loves his people. God loves his people and knows that living with idols is not good for them. Depending on other things other than God is bad news for them. So God is applying deep surgical wounds of cushion to take away the scourge of sin in their lives. In the same way that a doctor must, you know, cover up that body and as painful as it is and extract the sin from them. God is sending cushion to inflict that deep surgical wounds to remove that sin. You see, God wants them to see the futility of their idols. The very anger of God against their sin is a sign that God loves them and is jealous. He's a jealous husband for them. He longs to be with them and he wants them to turn away from their sin. Now, we are God's people today. Our sins also are never free. God takes our relationship with him seriously. And he loves us too much to let us wallow in our sin. 
And sometimes God corrects our sins by taking us through a cushion moment. Uh, he allows difficult people, you know, the cushions of this world, to walk through the doors of our lives to force us to look to him. Sometimes God disciplines us by having national leaders that are corrupt. Sometimes God disciplines us by allowing, allowing church leaders who break our hearts. Sometimes God disciplines us by having parents in our lives who don't quite measure up. Sometimes our cushion moment is having children who won't bend to where we want them to. Sometimes God dismisses by allowing bosses at work who are brutally difficult to work with. I wonder who is the cushion him in your life at the moment. God is so sovereign that he can allow such difficult situations as a disciplining rod, not because he approves of the actions of those individuals, but because he's sovereign over such things. And of course, at this point, we should pause. We should say, of course, there would have been people in Israel brutalized by Cushan who had done anything wrong, who are still faithful, and who meet some of these individuals. But in the man, as a nation, God allowed Hatek to lay hold of his people so that he could discipline them. And you see, when we face such cushion moments, we must always ask ourselves first, when we find ourselves in a situation where we are under oppression or very difficult circumstances, we, the question we must always ask is, what does God want me to learn from this? Where does God want me to change? Yes, the government is corrupt, but what does that say about my own need of repentance? Perhaps where does God want me to learn? Why is God allowing us as believers to live under such difficult governments? Assuming the government is difficult, of course. But the same thing at work. If this person is very difficult, when they're very difficult boss, the question we should ask is, why is God allowing us to experience that? What is God perhaps helping us to learn from that? Are there any idols in my life God is aiming to destroy through this difficult situation? How does God want me to draw closer to him? Because you see, God is so loving and committed, and he'll remove every trace of sin from our lives. And he's able to use anything to drive that sin away. That is good news. And here is better good news. God pays the rescue price for sinners. And that's the third point. God pays the rescue price for sinners. We see here that the people of Israel have now been under cushion slavery for Eight years, and it seems the gods they have turned to are so useless in their hour of need. Look at verse 8 there, and he says, And the people of Israel saved Cushan, towards the back end of verse 8, he says, And the people of Israel saved Cushan, to him eight years. And verse 9 tells us, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, I think it's C.S. Lewis who famously said, 
God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that is true here. The suffering they're experiencing has all of a sudden awakened memories of God. The people of Israel have all of a sudden remembered they once worshipped a God. And so they cry out to God for help. And God amazingly listens to these sinners. Look at that in verse 9. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. Now what's happened here is that they have probably come before God um, crying for help, but they, they are, this is not really a repentant cry before God. They, they, they probably still have in their houses all the Baha'is and all the Asherahs. They are, they, they, it's not genuine repentance. They're just saying, look, if there's a God out there, whoever you are who we once worshipped, please help us. We are stuck here. We need your help. And God surprisingly hears this desperate prayer. These are fighting prayers for rescue. Because you see, God is gracious like that. Now this morning we said as believers we must come before God with boldness, with confidence. But here we see something interesting that God, even in our brokenness, even in our half-heartedness, He can hear us because He's gracious like that. He sometimes hears us even when we do not care for him because he's so rich in grace. We serve a God who is eager to answer our prayers for help. God is not trying to make us jump into hoops to come to him. He is eager, he's willing, and when we come to God in prayer, you know, he's not there sort of saying, you know, say the right word there, I will hear you, or here and there. God hears out of the abundance of his grace for us. And God here hears them out of all the messiness they are in. And God's response is beautiful. Look at that. And the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. Verse 9 tells us. Who did what? Who served them? Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now we've already met Othaniel in chapter 1. When he won that amazing battle at Debir. He rode in there and he delivered for the house of Judah. He is from the tribe of Judah and we remember that Othaniel is married to a very wonderful wise person, Aksa, the daughter of Caleb. Othaniel being raised up here by God is a man full of character, with the right background, with the right connections. He would be one of those who would say nowadays, like, you know, one of those Eton boys. It's like raising up one of those... Guys that went to Eton and Oxford and they tick all the right connections and boxes. He's the prime example of a leader. And he doesn't disappoint us. Look at this then. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushion to him, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rister. And verse 11 tells us, So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, died. What we see in those two verses is that Othaniel amazingly, amazingly defeats this world emperor. He defeats him and he frees Israel from, the, from his hand. 
David has defeated Goliath. The country now has a new national hero in the name of Nathaniel. But look closely at that verse 10. The real hero is not Nathaniel. It is God who has achieved this victory. Look at verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. God himself has come and shared his very life with Othaniel. God has effectively gone to war through Othaniel to free his people against their enemies. Friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God who ultimately serves his people. And God here in, in Judges, he doesn't just serve them. Notice what happens is that God, the Spirit of God, is now ruling over his people as their judge. Because the Spirit of God raised on Nathaniel, delivers this decisive victory. And then we are told in verse 11, so the land had rest for 40 years. Sometimes the question is asked, who is the first judge of Israel? Humanly speaking, it is Othaniel. But really, in verse 10, we have the more clear answer. The first judge of Israel is the Spirit of God who has rested on Othaniel with power. And of course, what God has done in Othaniel is not the end, because verse 11 tells us that Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And therefore the rule of Othaniel for all his amazing achievement was limited. It's therefore pointing us forward to Jesus the Messiah. You see Jesus like Othaniel comes from the tribe of Judah to shepherd his people. Like Othaniel Jesus was empowered by the Spirit of God to lead his people against their enemies. But Jesus is better than Nathaniel because what? Jesus never dies. He's the eternal son of God. In Jesus we have a judge who never dies. And he has come not just to bring grace to Israel, but to bring grace to all sinners who have rebelled against him, against God, and put their trust in him. In Jesus, God, if you like, has paid the price for sinners with his own blood on the cross. And Jesus has done more than Nathaniel. He hasn't just freed us from sort of some, some, some cushion figure. You might say that cushion is a sort of type of Satan. But, you know, Jesus does more than just free us from a cushion figure. He delivers us from sin, death, and hell. The whole lot. And ultimately, he frees us from ourselves. Jesus is our everlasting Othania. And this is the grace of God in Jesus. That's God's amazing grace to you and I. So how should we respond to this grace? How do we respond to this amazing grace? Well, the answer is we must rest in the grace of Jesus. Because that's what we are given in this verse. This is the final point. We must rest in him. Look at verse. The, the, the key outcome of God's deliverance in verse 11 is rest. That's what he says. So the land had rest for 40 years. 40 years there is one generation. And the word rest here really means to enjoy peace and calm. And notice it's the land that has rest. 
So what he's saying is that the entire land of Canaan is resting now. The country is safe. It is secure from its enemies. Enemies from within, enemies from without. There's rest everywhere you look. War has stopped. People can now get on with their economic activities. Farming is thriving. Village life has resumed. People are sitting out in the sun. Communities are flourishing. Relationships are being rebuilt. War has ended. Therefore, relationships can now be restored together. There is shalom now dwelling in the land of Canaan. Life is flourishing. The rest is not something these people have earned. These are people who worship demons, who worship you know, stone, you know, idols made of wood and stones, but God has now lavished grace on them and has given them this tremendous rest. It is always what God had planned for them. When God wanted them to come into the land of Canaan, he wanted them to rest. You can follow up Deuteronomy 12, verse 8 to 10 in your own spare time, where God promises that rest. And of course, Israel rebelled and it failed to enjoy this rest. And so God had to discipline them and he had to now raise up Bethaniel to rule over this nation for 40 years. Did you notice something there? How many years were they disciplined by Cushan? How many? How many years have they enjoyed peace? 40 years. Five times. The, the discipline lasts for, 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 for what? You know, the discipline lasts for a night, if you like. It's just for a little bit. But God gives them rest for this entire generation. I mean, that's just the goodness of God in our lives. When we are going through God's discipline, sometimes it feels like forever. It feels like we're going to be stuck there for a long time. But God is gracious. You discipline us for eight years to give us that 40. I, I, I think if you are interviewing that entire generation, they would say it was worth it. That 40, that eight years of discipline was worth it to purchase these 40 years, this golden 40 years. And what's amazing here is that we are told that the rest they enjoy for 40 years ends when Othaniel dies. Look at that. So the land that rest for 40 years, and Othaniel, the son of Kenes, died. And the good news there is that our Othaniel, the Lord Jesus Christ, he never dies. We have received from Jesus a permanent rest. Through Jesus we have eternal peace with God and now partners in this marvelous kingdom of light. A safe and loving and secure kingdom that can never be shaken. More than that, Jesus has secured for us, all of us in this room, who have come to faith in him. Not just eternal peace, but eternal rest that will culminate in a new heavens and a new earth. We are reminded at the Lord's table. All who are in Jesus have a future with God where there's no more tears, no more pain. A permanent, eternal, glorious rest. How should we respond to this amazing grace? We must rest in it. We must rest in it. And what does resting in the amazing grace of rest 
look like? We're resting in the rest of God. To sit as means living each day, not as people who must end the grace of God, but as people who have accepted that grace. It means living your life under the banner that says, it is finished, because the Messiah has died. Resting in the grace of God means not worrying about what the world thinks of you. You may be considered a loser or stupid by some, but your confidence must be in God alone and enjoying that rest that Christ has given you. Resting in the grace of God means accepting that it's not about how you feel, but what Jesus says. Sometimes you feel lonely and worthless, but what does Jesus say about you? He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And again, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Friends, the gospel is a gospel of rest in the grace of God. So stop running and start resting in all that Jesus has done. As we were reminded at the Lord's table, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, Come to me, come to me, he says, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That was read for us. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you do what? You find rest for your soul. The gospel is a gospel of rest. That's what I've learned this week. And we need to all apply that in our lives. A big sigh of relief like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Well, may God help all of us to start resting in Jesus, our Othania. Amen.